Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cricket Ultras. This is Arun Sudham, and I'm joined, as always, by Darren Burns and Toby Doman. Uh, and we're very lucky today. We are joined by a special guest who is none other than Daniel Norcross. Uh, Daniel, as many of you will know, came up with the test match sofa concept, which, as I remember, it was a, a breath of fresh air in what was then a, a quite a staid cricket commentary world. Uh, test match sofa was eventually bought by the Cricketer magazine, and Daniel is nowadays a commentator with the BBC's Test Match special team and a broadcaster and a prolific presence across the cricketing sphere. Daniel, welcome to Cricket Ultras. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's lovely to see you inside other people's houses. It seems to be the, the thing during pandemic time. I get to see more interiors of houses than I ever did before. I'm thinking of actually becoming a, a real estate agent after all the cricket's done. <laughs> Carefully curated often. I feel the, the the views we get. Yeah, they are, aren't they? It's it's one of the that's again that's sort of the motif I think of this year and a half. We're going to look back on this, and people are going to be sort of defined by their bookshelves in a way that I don't think we ever imagined would be the case last February. Indeed. Well, Daniel, thanks again for joining us. We're really happy we've got you on the pod, and and we've got a, a number of questions that we want to fire at you, and so we're going to do this the way we've done previous episodes where we've had special guests where we'll we'll take the questions in a kind of round robin format um and then if we have time at the end uh we've got a quick fire round as well um we have done some research or rather i should say toby uh has done some research um or at least i believe he read wikipedia <laughs> guilty i think you did more research than that toby this is this is quite a briefing <laughs> document here um and in fact i saw the picture on your twitter page daniel where, where hawaiian shirts was was actually it's kind of adopted by the whole test match special team in, in your honor yes it was that was that was uh, an extraordinary day actually it was we were in sydney and we'd been around australia twice um by this stage because i was there for the ashes series in 2017-18 and by the end of a long tour we'd run out of ideas really and I'd, I'd also run out of shirts because, you know, you just wear the same ones over and over again. You've got this suitcase and there's about eight shirts and they just go on a rotation. So my producer suggested that we have Hawaiian Shirt Day. And everybody played ball apart from Ebony Rainford-Brent, for whom that was a, an, an indignity too far for her. So the, the picture that's my pinned tweet has got James Taylor, Jimmy Anderson, Charlie Dagnall as a TMS commentator, former... Well, I was going to say former Leicestershire player. We played for too many, too many teams to mention. <laughs> and um, uh, who else is on there? Henry Moran, my producer. So uh, we went to a shop in Sydney and we tried to find the most awful shirts possible. And I think we succeeded, with the exception of Ebony, who looks absolutely prim and perfect and stylish as ever. <laughs> Indeed. So we're going to go over your route into the comms box, um, the business of commentary in the media, and your thoughts ahead of what is shaping up to be a packed summer of cricket in England. Um, and of course, there's an Ashes series as well to come. So let's start with question one. Uh, Toby, I believe that one is yours. Yeah, um, I thought before we get into the cricket and, you know, Arun mentioned research, it, it comes to my attention that before the, the, the cricket kind of played a bigger part in your professional life, 
that one of the jobs that you'd been involved with post-university, I think, was playing pub quiz machines. So before we get into the cricket, I think we need to hear a bit more about this. How did that come around and how many pubs are we talking? <laughs> right. Well, it's well, a lot of pubs. Um, I'll, I'll try and quantify it for you in a moment. Um, it started because at university, I was not a particularly diligent student. And right next door to um, the college where I was residing, there was a pub, the Lamb and Flag, which was a very convivial environment. And I tended to spend, it was in the days when pubs weren't open all day. So it was, it would get me out of bed and I could get in there by about noon, stay till about three, and then from six till about nine in the evening, and then back into the college bar for, for the rest of the evening. So it was costing quite a bit of money. And also convivial as it is, um, you do sort of repeat the same conversations. And then this quiz machine arrived. I remember it. It was like a like manna from heaven. It was called Skill Cash. And uh, it didn't require any skill, but it did dole out cash. And back in 1990, 92, which is the time we're talking about, IT was not as advanced as it is now. So the databases couldn't contain as many questions. And each question had three possible answers. Uh, being a sort of trivia bore anyway, I found that I knew the answers to roughly questions, which wasn't enough to make money because, you know, you remember every other question you weren't 100% sure of. But then you had a one in three chance of getting it right. And then when you got it wrong, you just banked that memory. So the next time you had a one in two chance. And so over the course of about 15 pound coins, um, I was able to assimilate the answers to all 3,000 or so questions on skill cash, which then became um, a sort of cash point because you just put a pound in, you could guarantee you knew all the answers, provided there was money in the machine. Then the issue became how do you, it's a bit like cod fishing, you know, you've got to keep it fertile. There's got to be enough resources in there in order to plunder your booty. So, oh, yeah, exactly. So you'd have to wait for people to lose money. You know, you'd really encourage people you thought were pretty <laughs> dim. You, Why don't you, you were kind of hustling? <laughs> kind of hustling, kind of hustling. And then it became clear because these machines sort of sprouted up around uh, Oxford, where I was living at the time. And quite a few of them did. And amazingly, that a, a sort of coterie of quizzes appeared, one of whom was a former mastermind finalist he, he came second and he used to wander around rather sinisterly around the town with this little leather pouch which was just jangling with pound coins that he'd taken from various machines and i thought this seems like a good idea so in concert with a friend of mine who, with whom i was also at university when we left in 92 together we called up the number the service number on the side of one of the machines i can see it now it was gold sticker with black lettering it said claremont claremont leisure so we rang it pretended to be from a student newspaper and said we'd done some research and found that skill cash and another one that had a very similar database that was both run by claremont um are the second and third most popular quiz games in, in pubs you don't say the first because it was too obvious we thought and um, we'd like to go and interview people who use them you know, for, for a sort of piece we're going to write about them. And this very accommodating lady on the other end of the phone then started saying, oh, right, well, yes, I can tell you where they all are. And we thought, we don't want to know, well, we don't want them in Warwick, do we? And we were back in London at the time. So we said, any chance you could do it with them sort of 
10 mile, five mile radius of this postcode, which was my house. And bless her, she then gave us about uh, 15 to 20 different pubs where these machines were. And so my friend and I would sort of have a leisurely breakfast and then do two pubs a day uh, because that, that way you could sort of retain the cod, if you like. They kept on, they kept on breeding. And um, you would take out about, well, if you were lucky, depending on how much was in the machine, you might get 40 or 60 quid per machine and then move on to the next pub, then go home after a hard day's work of maybe two and a half hours in two different pubs and spend your winnings and then rinse and repeat. I, I don't think I've ever had a more perfect lifestyle in actual fact than that. It was heavenly. And uh, I was I was swimming in pound coins, but that's that's how that worked. And then unfortunately, IT improved and uh, databases got bigger and they changed all sorts of things. And then you, you could answer the questions, but then you had to spot the P under a cup, which was a complete con because they were obviously just preventing you from winning. And, and I, then I lost all faith in humanity and had to get a proper job. That's amazing. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> yeah. What a great, what a great side yeah. hustle. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was undeniably enormous fun and um, you were in pubs at lunchtime. So, you know, you, you were quite sensible. You'd sort of, you'd, you'd buy a lunch in a different pub each day. So the landlord sort of thought that you were, you know, giving back, so to speak. And that way they do, they weren't watching what you were actually doing. And then you had to sort of put on loud music on the jukebox because when you took the money out of those days, it had this very mechanical thing. We go, which was very loud. So, you know, best to try and whack on some Black Sabbath when you were about to take the money out, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. Just the level of planning, the attention to detail. It's really, um, it's, yeah, it's very impressive. I promise we'll get to commentary at some stage and cricket. But before we do get there, in your pre-commentary years, we read that you were suspended from Oxford University for going, and I quote, overboard with a prank. What was the prank? And can you give maybe enlighten us a little bit on that, Daniel? Yeah, I didn't know that that was out there. I'd say, <laughs> not, well, I'd Toby's, say, a, Toby's a hell of a researcher. Toby's oh, a keen dear. researcher. Yeah, this totally. Is, yeah, this is seriously good research. Okay. Um, well, as, as I told you, I wasn't a particularly diligent student and my days at university were mostly spent if they weren't in, in pubs doing quiz machines there's cricket in the summer and football and pool and darts the rest of the time and bridge um, and so i sort of went there and, and you know acting a bit so I, I sort of went there as a kind of social exercise to be honest with you there was a there's a fella i can remember his name shall i say his name was paul glossop and he was a copper-haired lancastrian and uh, he didn't take a great deal to get him quite drunk. So after he'd had a couple of pints, he would suddenly start to recite the parrot sketch in a very high-pitched Lancastrian accent, which was his accent. He'd say, hello, miss, I'm sorry, I've got a cold. <laughs> and then run through all of it. Holy cow, it's invisible. And, um, and I found him charming and hilarious, but at the same time, uh, somebody that it was very easy to play a prank on. And it was the end of the first term, which I think was called Michaelmas at my university and uh, it was the, the end of the first time of my fourth year. So I got really close to the end of my four year course. They weren't going to let me stay in my room for a week after the term had ended because they had a conference on or something. I suddenly became very pompous and thought to myself, I've been at this college for nearly four years and what, like, I've captured the bridge team. I've captured the darts team. I've given this college so much. Go with it. I hadn't, of course. I mean, I'd done all those things, but that wasn't really particularly giving. But you know how pompous one can be when one's 21, 22. And I thought, this isn't right. I want to, 
I want a bed. I want a bed for the night because I couldn't, I didn't want to go home for the next few days. I had other things I needed to do. So the organ scholar, this is, <laughs> this is the most middle-class story of all time. The organ scholar had gone home and I was having to kip on a friend's floor. And I thought, well, this is no good. I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to nick the bed. I'm going to nick the organ scholar's bed. So I did with a friend and um, re- re- relocated it, if you will, in my friend's room so that I had an actual bed to sleep on. Now, of course, it didn't take very long. I mean, less than a day before the college authorities wondered what had happened to the organ scholar's bed because they'd gone into tidy the room and, you know, it was going to be used for a conference. And so the call went out, have you seen the bed? What's happened to the bed? All alert, all points bulletin. It was like your I-5-0, you know. Um, we got to find the bed. And I thought, I'm going to ride out this storm for a couple of days. But then the net just tightened. So I thought, right, well, we, we've, got to, we've got to dispose of the bed. And the night that Paul was running through his parrot sketch again, charmingly but insanely, and was clearly drunk, I decided that was the night we were going to move the bed. And I put it onto the onto the, the lawn in what was called, Can- is still called Canterbury Quad. And I lured Paul out to the bed when he was very drunk and got him a bit more drunk and he fell asleep on the bed and woke up at six o'clock in the morning in the gardens on a bed. And, you know, the porters then found both the bed and Paul Glossop. And, um, and I hadn't really thought it through. I thought it was rather jolly and fun, but of course he, he's a grass um, which he should never do. He should never lag. I watched Prisoner Cell Block H religiously, the great uh, Australian soap opera, and assumed that nobody would lag because otherwise, you know, they know what happens to laggers. Uh, anyway, nothing did happen to Paul, and I got sent down for a year. <laughs> so that's that's the story. It's, it's looking back on it, it was tremendously infantile, and I'd hoped everyone had forgotten about it. <laughs> there you go. No, I'm sure poor old Paul hasn't forgotten about it. He had a very comfortable night. I even found his teddy bear and put it next to him in classic Sebastian flight kind of Brideshead revisited fashion. It was it was all it's a beautiful tableau, I tell you. But you know, <laughs> and so he grasped. He he gave you up. He must have done. There's no other way they could have known. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't me. It was Norcross. <laughs> we'll have to find him on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's another I'll great go. story. I hope we haven't peaked too early here. <laughs> Toby, over to you. So a bit, a bit of cricket now. I think it's probably probably high time. We're just looking at your um, a book. I think you co-authored or compiled the forty-eight. I think it's about forty-eight playing members of Surrey County Cricket Club who served in the First World War. Just tell us how that came about because that's a really interesting bit of history, and obviously you've had a front row seat. So how, how did that come about, and, and sort of how did it develop? Well, actually, there's a chap called John Surtees, who's the sort of media manager and sort of minister without portfolio at Surrey. Um, Surrey is a fantastic club. I say that partly because I'm a Surrey fan, but partly because they, they really do have a terrific sense of their responsibility in the community and their wider responsibility to the history of the game. You know, all sport is nothing without its, without its history. That's sort of why we are so involved in it, I guess. And Surrey is unique in um, England for having an honours board that contains not just the players who played in their first team, but everybody connected with the club. So uh, people who played in the Colts sides and the second 11s and and whatnot, which is why there are so many names on there, but they're all honoured on this board. And John Surtees got to know a chap called Philip Payne, who is um, 
he's a sort of collector of cricket graves. I don't mean he actually digs them up and takes them home. That would be too macabre. Uh, but he he finds them, he seeks them out, finds them, takes pictures of them. And he'd been compiling a lot of these, and he'd found the graves of these 48 people. And uh, John said, we need to honour these guys in a book, to, really for the 100th anniversary of the of the First World War. And so it was, it was an incredibly difficult task because these are extremely ordinary people. And I mean that in the loveliest way. You know, Ernest Atwater is one near the, the beginning of the book. He's, he's just a, a local lad. He was a bell ringer. Um, he played in the, the sort of ground staff team once or twice. There's a picture of him playing in Mitcham. And he was just an, an ordinary man with an ordinary life. So you can't really find out a great deal about him other than, you know, his cricket statistics within Surrey because a lot of those, those scorebooks still exist. So you had to sort of dig around. And we could only really give rudimentary biographical information for most of them. There were some of them that were actually quite famous, a guy called Marshall, Alan Marshall, who was an Australian all-rounder, really good one, and uh, and also a very naughty boy. He got um, he got banned for a couple of games once for arriving in a match incredibly drunk, which wasn't hugely unusual before the First World War. Uh, I think, was it Bobby Peel was the one who did that as well? But anyway, I digress. So we, we had him as a chap called Raphael and uh, the Chinnery brothers, and they actually sort of had lives of consequence before uh, they died in the First World War. So we were able to piece together a bit more of their lives, and there was some stuff in, in newspapers about them. But what was actually more poignant was, was not the people who'd had a life. It was the ones who hadn't. It was the sort of crushing waste. There was a lad who was only 19. Who's, his name eludes me now, but he was the best schoolboy cricketer of his generation, his, his wisdom stats had him, you know, averaging 65, 70. He'd written an article in the cricket. He was an erudite boy. And it, you just felt sure he was going to go on and do great things. And he, he joins up and within a month he's dead, you know, and the, the sort of poignancy of this is, is quite extraordinary. So it was, it was actually a lot more emotionally taxing than I'd expected to be when John Surtees came to me with the idea and Philip Payne, came to me with the photographs and what have you, because uh, you find yourself getting really sucked into World War One web sort of forums and relatives. And we found some letters that, are, you know, from 100 years ago was sent from the front. And it sort of really brings home to you the absolutely devastating pointlessness of, um, of war and how it always takes, it takes away promise doesn't it? You know, you sort of feel that if war could be hypothecated to the over 50s, it would feel somehow less, less abysmal because at least we'd had a chance. But it's all these 19 and 20 year olds who were in the prime of their lives with so much ahead of them. So yeah, that was, that was what that was. And it's, it's indicative really of the way Surrey is as a, as a county, they care about those sorts of things. And uh, I, I felt actually very honoured to be a part of that project. Mm, yeah, sounds like a very important project. Next question is mine. Uh, so this is about Test Match Sofa and Test Match Special. So obviously, Cricketer buys Test Match Sofa. Te- test Match Sofa. Sorry. When you say them both together, it's actually, you know, it's like a tongue Yeah, that was, that was, I still have a problem with it myself, actually. And it's, it's not a good look if I say, you know, <laughs> first day of the second test on Test Match Sofa. Special. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should try it. 
Um, I have. I've done it. It was. It was. Yes. There was. A, there was a loud noise in my ear <laughs> from the producer. <laughs> So Test Match so far, obviously, was, was the classic kind of outsider challenger brand, especially when put up against Test Match Special, which was the establishment, it's conventional, it's sedate. And then you make the move into the TMS commentary box. How were you received by um, some of the more, let's say, establishment figures in, in that commentary box? Well, actually, very generously and extremely well, much to my surprise, but delight. Not because I, I thought that they would be, you know, venal and unpleasant, but because you, you are an imposter and you're coming in after there'd been quite a lot of publicity, um, just to put it into context, the last year that Tasmat Sofa existed, 2013, uh, there'd been quite a public spat, really, between the ECB, uh, the England and Welsh Cricket Board, and the BBC weren't happy about it. And uh, Christopher Martin Jenkins, the departed um, Tasmat special commentator, wrote about it actually in one of his last columns before he sadly died in 2012. Uh, and so there was a sort of sense of bad blood knocking about. But actually, uh, Jonathan Agnew was extremely supportive and he was part of the reason that I was on the programme. So, you know, it is, it's good to have a champion, and if the champion's the sort of figurehead of the program, it does help quite a lot. I think it was tougher, not so much with the ball by ball commentators, because you know they understood what we uh, what we do, you know, uh, and also they'd been able to hear me. I'd done some county games before I came on to Test Match Special, so the producer Adam Mountford had put me through uh, a bit of a, if you like, BBC induction with a match at the Oval, very generously, my home ground against Gloucestershire. And then I did the women's test match in 2014, which was a really good insight into how, you know, you, you produce a live program of that magnitude. And so by the time I was sort of sat down with the, if you like, the big guns, Jeffrey Boycott, Michael Vaughan, I'd done a couple of years. They were the ones that, well, say they, it was Jeffrey really, was the toughest nut to crack. As you can imagine, because what a lot of people don't properly appreciate about Jeffrey is he's a fiercely professional guy who wants what he does to be perfect. And he's deeply suspicious of people coming in and not being good enough. You know, you can imagine playing cricket with him. You know, <laughs> he was, you would need to be good or else there would be words would be spoken. So there was a degree of trepidation and anxiety when I would come on and work with Jeffrey because he'd make no bones about it. You know, he would, he would stare at you when he first went on and look at you very suspiciously. Who is this guy? You know, what's he doing here? Never heard of him. How many runs has he got? So you had to uh, be on your metal, I guess. And in a sense, you were proving yourself to somebody sat next to you, to your producer behind you, as well as to two million listeners for whom Test Match Special is a really important part of their life. You know, Test Match Sofa, in a way, uh, put itself in opposition to Test Match Special, but in another way, it was really an alternative to it. People could listen to both. You could dip in and out. And for most people who like Test Match Special, Test Match Sofa was a sort of loud, bawdy, unpleasant experience. We weren't at the ground. We had a lot of music, we had a lot of jingles. We were very irreverent. There was occasional swearing. We had a lot of Twitter interaction. Um, and Test Match Special is very different. So uh, really, you had to prove yourself to a whole to three different cohorts, if you like, of listeners. 
So it was a it was an enormous challenge. But funnily enough, if you don't think about the challenge and you just think about the cricket that's taking place right in front of your eyes, you simplify it all. And it all comes down to doing what you do anyway, which is describe a game, a game of cricket, be the camera on the radio. You are the camera for people listening at home. So all of that clicks into place. Everything else goes away and you hope that you're good enough. And and if you're not, they won't select you again. And if you are, they will. It's pretty much like playing cricket. Yeah. And I guess the, the, the fact that you were good enough, probably, some, you know, it, it would have... Any dissuaders, including Jeffrey, would have been won over reasonably quickly. With with Jeffrey, there was a. I had a little trick with Jeffrey actually, which um, because I've been obsessed with cricket since I was seven, so I've absorbed old cricket. I I love old cricket, and Jeffrey is a great student of the game. So I found if Jeffrey was banging on a bit, which he tended to do sometimes about England's top order batting, three down, three down after ten overs, you can't win matches like that. You're back in the pavilion. You don't go runs there. And he was absolutely right. But of course, we had heard it a bit before. So I would say at this point, you know, oh, what, what would England give for a player like Morris Leyland to be knocking about now? Someone solid coming in at number five and suddenly his eyes would light up because he knew he'd met Morris Leyland, you know, and he knew that great Yorkshire team of the, the 30s. A lot of them were still hanging around when he was coming into the, into the team. They were there as administrators and what have you. And so suddenly he'd start talking about Morris Leyland and I was riveted. And my kind of principle of this is that if I'm interested in what somebody's saying, then hopefully the listener is as well. So I used to kind of bring Jeffrey, bring those bits of Jeffrey out of him, which other commentators tended to do less, partly because they probably didn't feel they needed to because they'd already earned his respect. And partly because, you know, not every commentator is as interested in Morris Leyland and Herbert Sutcliffe as I am. <laughs> um, it 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 meant that you know Jeffrey would suddenly get excited and he'd say you you know you cricket Daniel and it it wasn't clear if I did know my cricket but I had read a lot about Morris Leyland and Herbert Sutcliffe so it um it, it worked as a technique and I think as a result we you know uh, we formed a, a decent partnership I'm 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 kind of miss him actually because by the time he'd um, done his last commentary I, I was really relishing the work I did with him you know the fear had gone. And the anticipation of, you know, we can have another lengthy chat about Len Hutton. Had sort of, <laughs> my producer probably is delighted because he's heard enough about the 1930s Yorkshire team by now, but I, I could hear more. Mm -hmm. Darren? That's really, really interesting. Sort of going back to, to the more shorter form, Daniel, when you're commentating on that, you know, what's the difference? I mean, obviously, when on commentating on test matches, there's a lot more chance to get into minutiae. Morris Leland, for example, but when you're watching it, you know, the IPL, the Big Bash, the Blast, it's, it's sort of, you know, uh, everything's happening. Every ball's an event. It's very excitable. There's brash commentary. They have a lot of recent players on there. Um, is there room there to be a bit different and be more genteel? Or is, is kind of that commentary going the way of the dinosaur on in short format cricket? I think it's very, very difficult to do. Um, David, it, it, you have to do it through your manner, really. David Gower has, I think, really blossomed on TV doing the Pakistan Super League because uh, he has a kind of wryness to the way he describes these things. So I remember hearing him describe, because uh, Cover Drives are, are sponsored at the PSL by Brighto. I don't know if you're aware of this. So he would say, and uh, and there's another Brighto Cover Drive. And you could almost hear it sort of, 
being forced out of his mouth. Um, and in so doing, I thought he he gave just you know a little bit of light and shade to the commentary, which, as you say, you know, there's there's room for all sorts of commentators. Danny Morris of the Double D's and Tom Balls, another maximum. You know, I, I despise the term maximum because it's just not possible. You can't have a maximum in cricket and they should stop using it. But I do understand it's part of common parlance and it's and it's sort of that kind of commentary has mostly taken over T20. On the radio, the practical difficulties actually of being a little bit more whimsical and finding a little bit more light, light and shade is simply the amount of information you have to give. I mean, that was to be too technical here. In a test match, you know, a, a, an average over will see between one and three scoring shots at most, really. Uh, it's probably one and a half to two scoring shots per over. And our job is, part of our job is to update you on, on the score. You know, that's played out to the offside, to the left hand of cover. They pick up a single, the score moves to 124 for two, route to 61. Then you've got space to breathe. But in a T20, that's happening all the time, every ball. And you've got to have the context of how many balls are left, how many overs each bowler's got left to bowl, because the radio listener doesn't have any of that information. So now you're not just the camera for the action. You're the camera, if you like, for the numbers. You're the sort of computer. You're sort of CFAX for people in England from years back, teletext. Maybe you guys had, you know. And... By the time you've run through that roster, what we call the, the sort of the fruit machine, which is what TV commentators have, they've got the sort of fruit machine of all the data. We have to describe that to everybody. You don't have a lot of space for for whimsy. You, it's where the strategic timeouts come in, really. You get two and a half minutes for a bit of reflection and to talk about the game. Um, what you try to do, I think, is... You know, the first six of the innings might be a big one, but there, there could be seven or eight, nine sixes in this inning. So just don't go berserk with the third six of the innings and the eighth over with the score on 64 for one. You know, the sixes, as you get a little bit like horse racing commentary, you know, the nearer you get to the end, the more you raise it. Yeah, exactly. So you always still want to find the, the light and shade. Those principles are still there. And they're just, concertinaed into a smaller amount of time and so um it is a skill I, I, I don't think i'm as good at at t20 commentary as as i i feel more comfortable doing test match commentary because there's more space for the mind to sort of float around and find actually lots of specifics but actually the ball by baller is less important in t20 what we've got to do on radio is get to our summarizer who will be explaining what the bowler's trying to do, you know, trying to bowl wide Yorkers, trying to bowl slow bouncers, why the field is set the way it is, what the batter's going to do to counter it. So they become, you know, more significant than you, and you really do become a, a sort of, I mean, I'm not saying you could computerize it, but you almost are a sort of computered voice, really just giving all the data well thank you um, that was interesting I knew, there's a lot going on there isn't there in that comms box um, and you mentioned you missing Sir Geoffrey and I think one of the things I've noticed in recent years is there have been some of the more established voices have maybe moved out of the comms box and you know TMS for example has got a history you know moving from Arlott to Johnston to 
to Jonathan Agnew, for example, there's a, there's always a sequence almost, but it feels like it's sped up a little bit. Where do you where do you sit on that or stand on that that apparent change in voices as we've seen in the last maybe five years almost? Well, actually, I th- I, I know what you mean, but I think what what's happened is that actually more voices have come in. So, not that many have gone out. Jeffrey, yes, I mean he's getting on as well, eighty odd. So that that that's always going to happen. Henry Blofeld similarly was was getting on, and and when you do get older, something that people don't fully appreciate is that when you especially do radio commentary, you're not looking at the monitor for the most part. You, you've got to look at the ground, and a hundred yards away, it does. It's you need to have good eyesight, basically. You've got to have pretty good hearing because you've got to pick up the stump mic. And as you get older, those faculties do deteriorate. So um, it isn't possible to give of your best as you get much older and, and your eyesight becomes less acute. So if you think really the core team of Jonathan Agnew and Simon Mann have been there. Simon Mann did his first commentary in 1996 in Zimbabwe and Agus has been there since 1990. Um, and then Alison Mitchell was brought in uh, very gradually from 2006, seven onwards through uh, Adam Mountford is now really established both on TV and radio. Um, and I guess I've been there, did my first women's game in 2014, my first men's game in 2016. So there's a degree of continuity there. Now, Isha Guha's joined the BBC um, to be a sort of front-facing TV as well as be on the radio. And she'd been on and off TMS since about 2011, 2012 was when she first started appearing, when she retired from cricket. And Ebony Rainford Brent, I've been working with ever since I've been there. So I was on, she was on that test match with me, the India women's test match in 2014. Uh, what is also happening though, and I think this is a really positive sign, is that we're bringing in more voices because there is a different style. There's a diversity of styles. We've discussed there on about T20. We were T20 and the 100 competition coming up as well. Um, you do like to have slightly different styles for different types of cricket. And bringing in the likes of Artif Nawaz, for example, uh, Adam Collins, the Australian, um, is, is, I think, really good for the programme because it it just allows the programme not to become... Um, I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way. I've always adored Test Match Special. I've listened to it since I was a kid. But I do understand why some people might get, you know, okay, can we stop talking about cake now? Can we stop being so whimsical? We've got, please, can we focus on on what's happening in this game of cricket? And in a way, you sort of have to do that, as we said, more with white ball. And so having the sorts of people who can talk to that, Charlie Dagnall's fantastic on, on white ball. You know, he's almost like a professor of white ball cricket, uh, I think makes the programme stronger. And it's always been part of, Test match, especially that you've had an overseas commentator, you know, all the way back, Alan McGill, very back in the 40s, 50s, all the way up to 1985. Uh, Tony Cozier, possibly for my money, uh, use a boxing term, pound for pound, the greatest commentator possibly of all time, um, able to move seamlessly from one medium to the other. Uh, and so having overseas commentators has been part of that diversity. Now having more women's perspectives, I think, is fantastic because these aren't these aren't having women for women's sake. These are women who devote their lives to cricket. You know, Isha, Ebony, Ali Mitchell, they're 
it's what they do. They, you know, they they know the game as well as anybody knows the game. So uh, I think it's marvelous to have those different perspectives. And yet at the same time, there's this seam runs through, and Jonathan Agnew makes absolutely sure that we know that we are sort of keepers of a legacy that goes back really to before TMS was born, back to the 30s and 40s with Howard Marshall and and the like, you know, Arthur Gilligan, C.B. Fry, and there's this sort of continuity that runs through it all. And we're trying to maintain that tradition whilst being reflective of a, of a different age. And they've always done that. You know, John Arlott, when he came on in the 1940s, he had a voice like none other on the BBC. Every BBC voice was, hello, welcome to the cricket here at Lord. And then you've got this, you know, crazy Hampshire burr. Now, can you imagine what listeners were thinking in the 40s? Again, this is political correctness gone mad. We've got somebody who sounds vaguely bucolic and working class on the programme. And no doubt there were letters being written in saying, what's happening to our BBC? Um, so it's actually a process that's been going on forever, this diversification, and it's brought to TMS some of its very, very best voices. Well, before we get into sort of the cricket cricket, just for, for ultra listeners, um, and I don't know if you've seen this story yourself, Daniel, a chap called Dean Duplessis in Zimbabwe. Yes. So I was just reading about this the other day. So for those that aren't familiar, Dean is a visually impaired commentator in Zimbabwe. I think he commentates for Radio 2000, which is South Africa's sort of TMS equivalent. And one of the things he mentions is uh, obviously he relies on the stump mic in particular um, to work out what's been going on. For example, he just check, check the story out if anyone reads it. He said that Freddie Flintoff would make hardly any sound at all approaching the wicket. Uh, Shane Warne would make a huge grunt. Uh, Andrew Strauss and Truscothic, apparently, when they batted together, Truscothic would just say run after he hit the ball. And Strauss would say, yeah, come on, come on, come on. So you get to know all the different uh, audio ticks. Have you, I guess, question for you, with the stump mic obviously available to the, to the commentator, are there any sort of classic stump mic moments that never get broadcast you can reveal to us today? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, it depends how graphic you're willing for me to be, but... Um... I mean, the very funniest one... Go on. Okay. Graphic. The very the very funniest one, <laughs> I think, is... As I, I find it funny. It's a bit childish, but I love it. It's Flintoff trying to cut a ball short outside the off stump, and it was there for the shot. He missed it, and he just shouts, Cut! <laughs> it comes through on the stump mic. So... Um, and you're, you're obviously very hopeful that the crowd at home, uh, the listeners aren't hearing that because then you've got to go through those awful verbal contortions of, of apologies and this, that, and the other. But yeah, you do hear sort of little odds and sods like that. But we don't have the stump mic turned up that much. So we don't get to hear uh, on TMS the interactions, really. You, you get to hear, fascinatingly, you, you get to hear sort of language. So... When Pakistan were playing last year, um, the Pakistan team have at, at least three different languages in their in their team being spoken. There was Punjabi, there was um, uh, Urdu, and there was uh, like Pashtun, I guess it would be. And um, Artif Nawaz was able to translate some of it for us. And also the idea that you've got three different languages in one team, they don't necessarily all understand all of those languages as well. So, and English, well, exactly, and you're absolutely right, and English. So, 
uh, you've got this wonderful layering. And that's another great reason for having a diverse commentary team, because Artif was able to inform us of something that somebody had just said. Um, and then that gives us a bit of an advantage over the listener who, who won't be hearing it with quite the same clarity and also won't necessarily know what, what people are saying. So the stump mic causes such controversy, though, on my, because I, I have a couple of friends who are visually impaired. And I get these messages before, or not before, but sort of half an hour into the first day of a test match. And it'd be, can you tell him to turn it down a bit? Or can you tell him to turn it up a bit? Or can he angle the the microphone a bit? Because it, the hearing of these people is so acute on occasion. It's quite extraordinary. When I very first started doing any commentary at all, it was at the Oval as a kid. I was 18. And I used to do it in the members' enclosure for a guy who was visually impaired. And I used to start by saying, you know, and he's edged up down to third man. And the bloke would say, um, I know he's edged it to third man. I can hear that. And I was gobsmacked by this. He said, but is there a third man in place? Said, you don't know if there's a third man, of course, because you know, third man could be on the, right on the other side of the ground. So he couldn't really hear someone's feet moving from 140 yards away. sort of thing. And so that's where I developed a technique for for describing the field, which I do whenever the field changes and twice and over, basically start of the over, then if it changes, and then if it hasn't changed, a sort of reminder after the third or fourth ball. Because visually impaired people need to know that more than they need to know where the ball's gone because they know where it's gone. I mean, I tested him and said, okay, if you know so well, I'm not going to commentate for an over. And sure enough, he got it right every time. You know, he's played it through the covers. That's gone through backward point. That's gone through mid-off. I mean, it was startling, actually. Um, but it also means, I mean, firstly, it explains why Dean is such a good commentator and able to do that. But it also reminds you of, of what we do as radio commentators. We're often the only way that visually impaired people can interact with the game. And so you've got a responsibility to those people to make sure that you give the information that they need. Um, that's obviously the score. It's, and it's and it's the field and it's things like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds terribly crassly to say, but it was quite an eye opener when I um, when I discovered that. And I say I get these I get these texts from from Robert Grimwood, and he's very passionate about the stump mic. It's it's a really important part of him being able to engage with cricket. All right, so I'm going to move on to current events. And I'd like to know your view on young Cameron Bancroft uh, reigniting the seemingly never-ending Sandpapergate controversy. Well, I think it was always going to happen, was it? Jeff Lemon wrote a terrific book, Steve Smith's Men. I'm sure many of you uh, are aware of it. He's a terrific writer, is, is Jeff. And he sort of gave a little bit of context to Cameron's comments again this week when he pointed out that the the real problem that Cricket Australia have is that they, they didn't do a full inquiry. They didn't actually speak to all their bowlers and go through everybody one by one and then release a full report. And, of course, anybody who's played cricket, even at you know at club level, will raise a wry eye at the idea that the bowlers didn't know that the, that the ball that they were getting their hands on had had some work on it. And, of course... You know, we've all been asked to believe that the first time it happened was when 
David Warner introduced to Cameron Bancroft how to do it, not having done it before, despite the fact that they hadn't needed to do it when the ball was swinging around corners during the Ashes series. So it, it stretches credulity was the problem. And because it does, then there's a little wound that people can poke at. My personal view is that um, improving the ball for bowlers has been going on since a ball was made. The English, Marcus, Marcus Trescothic wrote about mints in his autobiography and how the England players actually sort of alighted upon the best mints. So, you know, if you like, that's taking something deliberately out into the field of play, isn't it? If you decided, I want this mint because what it tastes best? Well, no, because it actually helps the ball shine properly in the way that we wanted to for reverse swing. So there's an awful lot of hypocrisy that's going on in this debate. For Cameron Bancroft, I, I'm sort of surprised that he wasn't able to find a form of words that didn't reignite it. And I don't know whether that was deliberate or whether it was just, you know, he was caught off guard perhaps by a very good interviewer in Donald McRae. Maybe he forgot his media training. Yeah, well, also, you know, he's a fall guy in this, isn't he? And the thing about fall guys is that you do need to be incentivized to remain a fall guy. So they should have should have picked him for the odd tour, I think, at the very least, even if they didn't give him a game. It's not, not like uh, Paul Glossop, was it? Yeah. He's, Get uh, him in the squad. He's kind of held, <laughs> yeah, held, held his tongue. A little bit like Paul yeah. Glossop. <laughs> So, you know, I, I look, I feel a bit for Cameron Bancroft. I feel, I feel a bit for the, uh, for the Australian players who have this brought up again and again, because I think Cricket Australia's initial reaction to it was over the top. And also, I'm afraid to say that the rest of the cricketing world delights in it so much because of Australia and, and where they've traditionally drawn the line, which has always been just in front of where they've just been so there's always going to be i guess a degree of schadenfreude when it comes and the same would be true of england as well um this fuss wouldn't be being uh, anything like as amplified had it been sri lanka that had uh, that had done this i'm absolutely sure so uh, there's an awful lot of hypocrisies going on in the whole debate speaking purely as an englishman with the ashes around the corner i'm sort of partisanly happy for it to come up again but i do realize that on a human level it's it's uh, it must be pretty tough for for those players when they look around, especially when they see, you know, uh, they're playing against South Africa. Faf Duplessis, and they've been not exactly an angel when it's come to the ball uh, in previous games as well. So and David Warner is very strong on natural justice, so I think he probably is thinking there's something deeply, deeply unfair about the way I've been treated when other people haven't. So that, there's a lot going on, isn't there? There is. There is. So speaking about the Ashes, you know, can England win the end of the year in Australia? I mean, it's a, it's a bit of later start. and it's December, I think, the first test in in Brisbane, uh, the Gabatois. You know, they got they got pumped by India last summer, which was you know pretty unexpected after the first test. Do you, you do think England has a good chance? And what do they need to do? I don't think they've got a good chance. I think they've got a chance. A, a lot will depend on how their top order uh, develops over the course of this summer. You know, England spend way too long obsessing over trying to win in Australia, and they're about to play the two best sides in the world at home. <laughs> so exactly, uh, yeah, Warm-ups. exactly, <laughs> crazy. Now, to a degree, if the weather ever cheers up here, it's possible that the back end of the season will be a relatively good test of how England could play in Australian conditions. Pitches in in June are no indicator at the moment; it's a completely green 
But with that top order, the likes of uh, Burns, Crawley, Sibley, they've actually got quite good techniques for Australia, I think. They're good back foot players. Um, and look, let's not forget, Australian pitches are really good to bat on. The average first inning score in Australia is about 100 runs more than it is in England. So batters should relish playing out there. The big issue any side faces when they play Australia is if Australia is able to get Stark, Cummings, Hayeswood and Lyon on the pitch for every game. And then if the games are really close together, if Australia will be foolish enough to pick all four of them in every game as well, because what we saw in that India series was that because those games were, sorry to use where games were concertinaed into a short space of time, it really affected uh, Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins, particularly by the back end of that. And so perversely, India putting out a second team pretty much through injury and whatnot actually had fresh bowlers coming in. There's no way they should have won that series on, on any kind of form or indicator but actually their bowlers just looked to have a bit more zip by the end of that series. So the key for England is you know, they've got very good interchangeable bowlers. If Joffre Archer is fit and there's Archer or Stone, for example, there's Broad and Anderson who, who continue to stay fit. Um, you've got Stokes, you've got Wokes. So they've got players that are sort of like-for-like -like replacements within their outfit, which allows them flexibility in their bowling attack. That's got to be you know, what they've really got to hope for. And in their batting, which didn't fall particularly short, it's got to be said four years ago, just their bowlers were not penetrative. Um, they'll be looking for the likes of Ollie Pope, who's played great cricket in Australia. I think he's a terrific prospect. He's got the game for Australia. Uh, here in Root and Stokes, who's had a lot of experience out there. And as I say, that top order has got to, got to sort of find itself. There's signs with Zach Crawley that he's there. Uh, Rory Burns has been a bit hit and miss, but I think he's got the game for Australia. And Dom Sibley could be exactly the kind of really boring nullifier in the Alistair Cook mould in 2010-11 that England need to wear down Australia. Because Australia have gone in with four-man attacks and they've not really been tested to the point when they've fallen apart until India just kept them out in the field. Pujara just kept them out in the field for long enough for them to break. And it sounds brutal, but Test cricket is brutal. It's a game of attrition. You want to, you basically want to break your opponents. Yeah, I, I think you're. I think you're right. This summer is going to reveal a lot with it with the top order. But I think you're right. I like the like look of Zach Crawley and Ollie Pope. I think they're look really good players and good good off the back foot as well. And can play short bowling as well. So good luck. Hope it's a great series. I do. What one thing that is marvelous about the, the shift in um, schedule is that the MCG test will not be a dead rubber because it's the third test. So. We might we might get ninety thousand at the G watching an actual live game, which would be fantastic. That would be amazing. Yes, Toby. Awesome. Well, look before we get to the Ashes. I think there's another big thing happening this summer, which is well, uh, possibly is it is it is it called the hundred? I hear you say, yeah, possibly. Uh, so we had we had uh, Martin Sorrell on the podcast a few weeks ago, who actually was Jeffrey Boycott's agent in the seventies, which I didn't know until we spoke. He was, let's say, uh, not particularly effusive about the hundred, but or about being Jeffrey Boycott's agent. We should probably point out as well. But yeah, carry on. Yeah, good, good save. Um, but I think you know the the question that he, we have is you know, there are new things happening in the game all the time. When One Day Cricket came about in the seventies, I'm sure people had similar uh, concerns. You know, wh where do you stand on the hundred? And maybe you could give us a preview of your jingle that I hear you've been working on for the BBC. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, where do I stand on 100? It's a hugely important competition for the ECB because they've staked a huge amount of money on it. Money that they, you can argue they don't actually have, especially they had this no fault their own. We just had a pandemic, which has cost them an awful lot of money as well. For women's cricket, I think people have got to try and remember that the 100 is fantastic. For English women's cricket, this is creating a whole raft of new professionals. At the moment, there's only really one one country in, in town with, with women's cricket. It's Australia because they professionalise, have 100 professionals, very hard to compete with them. By doing this, England is giving a lot more exposure to women cricketers uh, and it's going to create, I hope, a whole new generation of women cricketers who are going to come to the fore make the game stronger, bring more kids into it. Um, in England, cricket has for too long been a one-gender game. Weirdly, because you go to county matches, there are plenty of retired women out there. It's a retirees game, county cricket, because it takes place you know, during the day on weekdays. But women had never really been part of the administration, the organisation, and the inspiration for the next generation. I'm suddenly going to be a hip-hop there. But um, what... I think will happen uh, with 100 with women is that it's really going to put it right in the shop window. Now, for men, you can argue that there's something a little bit strange here. We've got T20. Why change it? And the reason is because they've got into a contortion. The counties need to keep their T20 competition because that's what actually keeps them afloat. So we were in danger of having two T20 competitions, the Blast with the 18 counties, and then this with eight franchises. My personal view, as it always has been since anyone tried to model this, was that we should have had two divisions of T20, the top nine counties playing against each other. That competition would be televised. The money that's generated from that would be hypothecated to the counties to sign players solely for that competition. There'd be promotion and relegation. You would televise one game from the second division, which would effectively be the playoff between first and second to decide who goes up. And that would be an absolutely mammoth game. Um, and that way you would get, you would model what they want, which is a tight enough competition for TV to televise all of it. Um, there's a lot of stuff being said that I just don't think is actually right, which is that the broadcasters have modelled the 100 so that it goes on for a certain amount of time to fit in their schedules. The BBC signed up for a T20 competition and they got the 100. They're not complaining about that, but they didn't They didn't force the 100 on people. Um, the ECB decided they wanted that to differentiate it really from the T20 competition. Uh, ultimately, there's going to be some very good players playing cricket. Now, this year, it's going to be a bit more tricky because of the pandemic. There's the danger that the Australians don't come over and they really are necessary, I think. Because what you're looking to get here is West Indians and Australians and ultimately Indian players involved to make for a really good league. Now, this year, there are some storm clouds on the horizon. You know, India want to have a change in the schedule to allow um, them to restart the IPL earlier. I don't know where we're at with that at the time of recording this. Um, that would take out a bunch of England players who were earmarked to play in the 100 as part of the sort of showcase, if you like, in the first few games. And you've got competitions taking place in, in the West Indies, which is taking out a lot of West Indies players. So it's quite a rocky um, 
if you like, introduction to the 100, having been postponed from last year, and then with all these things going on this year. But ultimately, it'll be on TV. There'll be people playing cricket. There'll be people watching it. Um, there'll be women's games galore, which will be, I think, fantastic. So it's got a chance if the weather holds, like with all these things, it's got a chance. To me, the problem is that we're trying to model something in England on the basis of what's happening in India. And we can't fit the 100 competition in into a kind of block with no other international cricket. So if you're a young boy or girl who turns up, gets very excited by you know, your local team, the Oval Invincibles, let's say, you might see a player that you know you fall in love with, you think, God, they're, they're brilliant, and they play for three matches and then they disappear. And that never happens in any other form of sport. So it's a bit confusing. You know, he turns to his dad or her dad and says, where's Ben Stokes? Why isn't he playing? Oh, oh well, he's playing in a test match. What's a test match? Well, that's going on over here. Now, that the IPL isn't done like that. The IPL has got its block and it's done in that way. It also doesn't have quite as established a domestic setup in which we've got 18 counties with fiercely loyal fan bases. 90,000 people tuned in for an hour to watch Darren Stevens go ballistic in a county championship game the other day on YouTube. That at the moment is what drives cricket interest. There are other worries as a result. County fans don't like the 100 because they see it as the removal of counties by stealth. They're worried that in 10 years' time, the counties will be gone. The franchises that are playing the 100 will replace them in all forms of cricket, four-day cricket, 50-over cricket, the 100 or T20, whatever they play. So there's a lot of anxiety and nervousness, and there's a little bit of sort of civil war and infighting. Um, but for English cricket, all that needs to go away. And we've just got to, we've got to hurl ourselves with enthusiasm at this new game. And a lot of people might be surprised by what they see. Conversely, the doubters may be proved right. I'm one of those rare people in cricket who uh, genuinely doesn't know what he thinks, which isn't awfully helpful for you. But um, I, I like to think that if you're not certain, you should have the courage to say so. So I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Good. Thanks. Thanks for your candor. All right. So we've got, I actually added one more quick fire question. So we've got five, but... Toby, I don't know if you still want to ask your first one. Well, I think we know the answer to this. So we'll go, we'll, we'll, just just for transparency, Daniel, it was what is your favourite pub quiz machine? But I think we've 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 dwelt on that for, for now. So we'll move on to the next and, one. Unless you've got a Still new, cash. yeah, unless you've got a new favourite, another scheme on the go. No, 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 okay. no, no the first, the, my first love is very strong. Okay. Yeah. Well, once you fall in love with one pub quiz machine, it's, um, yeah, there's never another. Yeah, I would, I would feel... I'd feel dirty saying, give us a break. <laughs> okay, so we'll go through the others. Um, one word or as few words as possible. So, Darren, go. You, you mentioned maybe your best or your favourite um, stump microphone <laughs> comment, which was, which was actually one word from <laughs> Andrew Flintoff. What, what about in the funniest commentary box moment that you can recall? Well, there are so many. Uh, this is a tricky one. One of them was me getting my head tangled in the microphone lead and my head was therefore stuck in Phil Tufnell's lap and I could only just see above the table with one eye to commentate ball by ball while Tuffers was trying to untangle me from his groin, which the, the listeners didn't hear, but I did particularly enjoy Henry Moran last week 
the ball, uh, not last week, uh, about four weeks ago during the IPL, ball was smashed back by the batter. Richard Punt was at the non-striker's end and he instinct and, and he, he went straight down to the ground. And Henry said, pants down at the non-striker's end. <laughs> Instantly got it, hit it perfectly. Um, yeah, co- co-commentator in giggles. Very good. Between that and Phil Tufnell's groin. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Toby. Uh, well, question, I, I think I might know the answer to this too, but let's see. Um, if you could take one commentator from, you know, time is irrelevant, onto your desert island with your discs, who are you taking with you? Tony Cozier. Toss up between him and John Arlott. People will say, why not Richie Benno? Richie's a TV commentator, brilliant at it. But... Um, uh, radio is my medium so I, I want to go with the voice that if you listen to Tony Cozier you turn the radio on having no idea what the score was you could tell from the tone of his voice whether the game was on a knife edge or whether we were in a kind of lull period or what was happening it was he had a most extraordinary skill effectively cricket just flowed through him he was like the conduit and it just happened it emerged naturally from his voice so yeah it would be Tony Good choice. Favourite ground to commentate from in the UK and overseas? Okay, give you two answers. The Oval's my favourite ground in in the world because of my attachment to it over many, many years. Uh, but actually, the one I most relish being selected for is Edgebaston because the food is sensational. It's like the best restaurant in Britain. And you get to eat so much. You can have curry and a roast at lunch. They have a fish bar. It's They have breakfast. They have incredible teas with little mini pies come out at 4.30. It's just fantastic. And my favourite ground that I've commentated from, I think the Adelaide Oval I find intoxicatingly beautiful. Uh, I love it. I love the statues they have around. I love their attention to historical detail. I love the trees that you look at. I love the way you go over the river, over a little bridge to get into it. Um, and I really like Adelaide for some reason. I've been, lived all my life in London, but I find Adelaide a really charming, beautiful place to be. And I also found a superb bar there that's hidden behind a wall called uh, Maybe Maze, where they made the most fantastic cocktail called the Penicillin, which I drank a lot of uh, when I was in Adelaide the last time. Yeah. Sounds good. Good tips for our listeners. Yeah, it's very hard to find. It's behind a kind of false wall. I found it because I was leaning on the wall, waiting to go to the loo, <laughs> and the door opened. I was like, wow, what's in there? It's like, it's really, exactly, it was a speakeasy. It was just magnificent. Maybe maze. Oh, wow. Serendipitous. Toby, over to you. Greatest innings that you've seen live? Might be one of the first, actually. Viv Richards 291 at the Oval in 1976 was quite the thing. It was had a swagger. It wasn't actually on the most difficult pitch, so that might slightly disbar it. Although now I've got such I've got incredible fondness for that. Botham's two hundred and eight at the Oval in nineteen eighty two. I loved the innings I most enjoyed commentating on was Alistair Cook's last innings for England, because the atmosphere in the ground that day was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was like the gratitude of a nation. I'd never. It's hard. I can't describe it in any other way. When he got to his 100, the crowd just erupted and it stayed erupted for about two and a half minutes. So I suppose, I think that was the, that was the most 
sort of sensational moment uh, that I've experienced. I, I wasn't at Headingley for Stokes's 135. That was one of the Ashes tests I didn't do, which I was a bit annoyed about. And what about bowling performances? Funnily enough, holding at 1976 on a relatively flat deck, taking 14 wickets is pretty hard uh, to improve on, I guess. I've seen a lot of Jimmy Anderson in English conditions be completely unplayable. Memorably against, I think it would have been perhaps India at Lords the last time they were here. He was 2017, was it? Yeah, I think 2019. 2018. No, 2019 was the Ashes. 2018, 2018. I think. Yeah, yeah. It was, he, was, he was incredible. And um, the way Coley had to decide to play Anderson out, if you like, you had this wonderful duel of some two of the greatest cricketers in the world of what they do. Um, that, was, that was incredible. Um, but actually, the bowler I most relish watching at the moment is Pat Cummins. I find him um, extraordinary. I don't quite know how you play Pat Cummins when he's on song. So I think I, I, think I find bowling more interesting to watch. If it, I know it's a strange thing to say because you're watching bowling and batting at the same time, but um, there's something about a really great bowler at the top of their art, which just has you... Especially in a, a test match spell, right? Yeah. You see those spells. Like I was at Lords when Joffrey Archer was bowling at Steve Smith and yeah. he went down. But that the way the atmosphere and the way he cranked up his pace, you just felt something was going to happen and it happened. And those, you don't get that with batting. You know, batting's ball by ball. But with bowling, you feel this guy's on song. Like he's, for some reason, he's summoned this spirit. Uh, yeah. And it's a beautiful thing. Especially it really is, bowling. isn't it? Exactly. I mean, I think the, the most seminal one for me as a child was, and I wasn't live, but I watched it on TV, it was Bob Willis at Headingley. When he, he, got into, he got into a kind of trance-like state, he would take a wicket and not celebrate. He'd just sort of go back to his mark with this kind of fierce Storm determination. Back. Yeah, just getting every last drop out of the pitch. And when you, when you see fast bowlers in the zone, it's a really wonderful thing to watch, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it really is. Indeed. Uh, and finally, World Test Championship final winner, given that it looks like we're going to be in for quite a green June. Mm. Well, that's obviously going to be India on boundary count back, isn't it? After a time, <laughs> because because uh, New Zealand aren't allowed to have glory. There must always be plucky losers. I, I don't, you know, India have got fantastic bowling attack. They've got the, the best fast bowling attack in their history. They've got such depth as they proved when they went to Australia and won. So even if it's if it's green, it doesn't necessarily make it easier for New Zealand, but they are conditions that the New Zealanders will be familiar with. So you might say that gives them an advantage. I think it's it has the potential to be absolutely brilliant. My fear for New Zealand is that they perform terrifically well at home, Fortress New Zealand. They're magnificent there. Um, when when it really matters in Australia, for example, they had a terrible series there the last time. They got blown away, and they shouldn't have done because they had the tools to play better. So uh, I would love to see New Zealand win, but I think ultimately um, India will India will do it. Uh, I'd like to be proved wrong because India have got plenty of opportunity to win lots of other games. I'm not anti-Indian. I'm just very very pro. Kiwi, and for some bizarre reason, uh, I feel strangely responsible for their disappointment in the World Cup final, even though 
I had literally nothing to do with it. But <laughs> so I think we should all feel a bit guilty about that, shouldn't we? It, it was. Yeah. It seemed rather unfair. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> <yeah>. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. Um, and, and because of that, I think I, I would not be unhappy if if New Zealand won the final. And I actually think they've got a decent chance because I, I think their side picks itself a lot more easily than India's does. I feel like India will have all sorts of questions they'll have to answer, especially around who they pick as bowlers um, and whether they go in with two spinners or not. Well, there's that. And New Zealand will have had two test matches as, as warm-ups. You know, we're talking about how England are viewing these as warm-ups. New Zealand genuinely should view these games against England as warm-ups. And provided they don't lose players to injury, I can see them rotating. I think both England and New Zealand will rotate their bowling attacks in those two games. And New Zealand are going to want to keep Bolt, Saudi, Wagner, Henry. I mean, they've got some got some terrific bowlers themselves. It's Jameson a golden age as well. Jameson, absolutely. Jameson. I mean, we're looking at a golden age of fast bowling across the world, actually. Um, people sort of, don't, I don't think, fully appreciate India's got their best fast bowling attack. England have got more excellent seamers than they've had for a long time to supplement. Broad and Anderson, Australia have got arguably, in, in, you know, Cummins Hazelwood, who's just an incredible bowler. They've got Nisa in the background, can't get a game. Stark, you've got a terrific side there in New Zealand, we just said. You can name five or six fast bowlers. Pakistan, keep producing them. Nazim Shah, Shine Shah, Afridi. Um, we often sort of focus on what's not there. There's no Donald and Pollock and Teeny, for example. And the West Indies aren't, it doesn't feel as strong as they were in the 80s. Who would ever be that strong? But actually, if you take a step back, I think we've got, um, despite what everybody fears about T20 and the 100 and white ball cricket subsuming test matches, we're living in a golden age of test match fast bowling, I think. That's a good note on which to end, I think. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. You've been incredibly generous um, with your recollections, with your insights, with your observations, uh, and indeed with your predictions on on the future of cricket. Um, so we will uh, we will enjoy listening to this, and, and maybe we can get you back on the pod sometime in the future. Have a good summer. Hope you enjoy all the commentary. Hope we get some good cricket. Oh, well, guys, thanks ever so much for having me. I always love chatting about cricket. It's what I do for a living. And in a way, you've sort of, you've given me a warm up because I haven't had any live cricket at a ground to commentate on since last September. So um, I start in a week's time. And this is, it feels like, I don't mean this in a pejorative way. It's, it's like having a very, it's like having yeah, a proper we're happy. net. Yeah, yeah, we're happy hour, to be hour and a quarter yeah. net, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're happy to be your net. We're yeah. happy Thank to be you your warm up act. Very, very happy. Bowling machine. Yeah, we're, we're, we're like the England to your New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, and, but, and, but you've very generously given me quite a few half volleys there. So I'm, I'm not sure it'll be quite like that come wet next Wednesday. But, uh, but thank you very much for having me. You've been terrific company. Great. Thank you.